Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 569 with David T. Denny. You know, we're still battling against that sort of old, I mean, I don't even know if it's an old wives' tale. It's just, it used to be this accepted um, philosophy that the restaurant industry was so risky. It's so risky. Like, nobody would invest in restaurants, never invest in restaurants. Well, it's only risky if you're undercapitalized and you don't have good people around you and you don't hire well because the restaurant industry is the second largest uh, economy in in the United States after healthcare. It's massive. It's a massive employer. People are always going to eat out. And all you have to do is provide a fantastic experience for the public, right? It's it's only risky if you if you don't do it well. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Introducing Ethic Suite, the first and only misconduct, theft, and fraud reporting platform exclusively for the restaurant industry. Check out restaurantethics.com to see how restaurant employees can report any concerns anonymously, easily, and securely from any device with internet connection. However, if you're an owner or manager, you should check out ethicsuite.com slash restaurantunstoppable for more information on how you can monitor and respond to these reports and stay informed about issues that could affect your business and your reputation. One more time, that's ethicssuite.com slash restaurants unstoppable. Cash flow is something every small business is worried about, and it's hard to know at any given moment how you're doing. And worse, it's virtually impossible to predict the future. Until now, welcome to CashflowTool.com, the ultimate companion for any small business using QuickBooks. CashflowTool.com gives you instant visibility on any device anywhere of your cash flow, and it also alerts for unexpected expenses. On top of all this, it analyzes your past finances and projects how much money your company will have tomorrow, next week, and next month. Go to www.cashflowtool.com slash unstoppable and enter promotional code unstoppable at checkout and receive pro features at the essential features price. And with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest back on the show for a second time, David T. Denny, my man. David, are you feeling unstoppable today? I sure am, Eric. Thank you. Yes, that's what we like to hear. So David T. Denny founded the Denny Law Group in early 2007, where he and his team represent founders, innovators, entrepreneurs, and companies doing hospitality well. Before forming his own group, David practiced with a large Dallas law firm, where he created the Food, Beverage, and Hospitality Practice Group. And on top of all this, David will be the president of the Greater Dallas Restaurant Association in the 2019-2020 fiscal year, man. Congratulations on that, by the way. And just, man, I I cannot wait to dive into today's conversation because we are always talking to successful restaurateurs and they're always saying, hire the people that do what they do and you stay in your lane and hire the lawyers, hire the accountants and and get the people who are experts to do those things. And that's why you're here. I I got the lawyer to to come and talk to us because uh, so many times on the show, we just had Jason Boso on the show who you actually told me to get in touch with. And what he told us to do is to really be careful about the intellectual property and protecting yourself when you're, when you're going to investors and getting things written down. Today, what we're here to talk about is what exactly it is that we need to get on paper and how we need to protect ourselves uh, and what that looks like. And you're going to do your best to, to put it in simple terms for us. That's right. Uh, but I cannot wait. Uh, so before we dive into that content, why don't you get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quarter mantra? What do you got for us? 
Tell you what, man, the quote that uh, that we go by here, and it's on our website, and 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 virtually every restaurant person has seen it because it's Danny Meyer, uh, and it's business like life is all about how you make people feel. It's that simple, and it's that hard. It is that simple, and it is that hard, and that is a great quote. How does that resonate with you, or why does that resonate with you? Well, because I mean, not only in the hospitality industry, but in in the in the in the the world of business where you want to work with companies who do hospitality well, whether it's a bike shop, whether it's a real estate company, it could be anybody, right? But but people have to do hospitality well. And it really is, at the end of the day, all about how people feel about their interaction with you. Mm. So it's it's not necessarily whether they had yummy food. It's not whether or not they had excellent legal documents. It's more about how they feel when they walk out of the transaction, when they walk out of the restaurant. Yeah. And and so that's all we that's all we focus on. Listening to you talk, uh, it can't help but think of what comes up a lot in the show is just you're only as good as your people, right? And if if you can be really good at treating people well, uh, and you can attract onto yourself amazing people and keep them around you, that is really like the secret sauce, in my opinion, to being super successful in any industry, let alone just the restaurant industry. But a great way to get this thing started. Do you want to add on to that? You're Looking like yeah, it. man. I just think that <laughs> I think if you don't surround yourself with good people, and and you don't have the ability to choose your choose your own clients, um, and make sure that they're good people, then you're going to have a really uh, unhappy life. Beautiful. So I'm chomping at the bit to get into the details of today's conversation. But why don't you just tell the listeners a little bit more about who you are, what makes you an authority on this topic, and why you do the work you do? Oh, sure. I'd love to do that. Um, so years ago, gosh, coming up on 13 ish years ago now. Um, I was a young lawyer and I was doing regular, what I call regular lawyer things, right? Transactional work and litigation. And it just was not that fun. Mm. Um, and I thought to myself, how am I going to have a, how am I going to enjoy this career for the next 40 years before it sucks the life force out of me? And um, I use this example a lot. So my, my brother, uh, his, his favorite Saturday activity, you know, he likes to go to a, he spends four or five hours. He'll go, like to go to a cowboy game. He likes to tailgate. I mean, he wants to have that experience. I'd rather go, with some friends to a restaurant, have a four hour experience, have a couple of bottles of wine, have a great time. And then, and as a, as a young man, that's, that was what I was interested in. I knew a few chefs, I knew, you know, sort of my way around the kitchen. And I thought, man, if, is there a way I can dovetail my avocation with my job? And if so, I think maybe this will make for a great career. And then I decided I would do it. And it took a lot of work. I bet. It took, uh, it took a lot of time and a lot of work and a lot of kitchen table late nights. Um, and, you know, here we are a dozen years later in this thing, and um, we've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of restaurant transactions. And, uh, you know, I'm in at a 45-degree angle in this industry that I love. And then now, gosh, I mean, I'm the first non-restaurant operator to be elected to be president of the Dallas Restaurant uh, Association, which is just the, the biggest honor ever. I can only imagine. And I'm curious, how many lawyers are doing what you're doing specializing in hospitality law like is that is that a big market or is that no it's not a big market i know i mean there there are people that are in the hospitality industry to some degree but but the people that are really really in it i probably know five people in the country that do interesting cool um i think the other thing that's really interesting too uh that's kind of pertinent to uh this your life is becoming a specialist, right? And I think that's something that I've also learned about restaurant tours. Uh, do focus on doing one thing really well, right? And become known for doing that one thing. And that's yeah. like you see it with lawyers, you see it with doctors. And I think restaurant tours should should think like that too. They need to know the big picture. But if they, I think especially going to the future, uh, 
I don't know. I feel like it's going to be a world of specialists. Do you agree or disagree with that statement? I do. I think the idea of spreading oneself too thin is a real danger, mm. no matter what industry you're in. Yeah. You know, there, the list of kinds of lawyering out there that, that are available is way longer than the kinds that we do. We only do the kinds of law that a, that a hospitality company would need. Okay, cool. So I think we got an idea of who we're talking to now. So uh, I just can't wait to dive into this topic because, again, it comes up so often to, to hire the lawyers, to, to protect yourself, to get things on paper when you're, when you're getting partners. Uh, so we're going to take two verticals here. We're going to start by talking about uh, protecting yourself if you're going after money, basically. If you need partners for money and that's what you want them to be and that's all you want them to be, how to approach that situation and set yourself up for success. And we might, where we will also at the end, talk about what you need to do if you're looking to get partners who are going to be in the trenches with you. Say you're a chef and you want a front of house partner, like how can you protect yourself in that relationship? So those are the two verticals we're going to talk about. I think the majority of today's conversation will probably, and correct me if I'm wrong, be on protecting yourself from the money guys. Is that more of what you think is more relevant? Yeah, probably. There's probably more content there. I mean, the way that we look at it really is protecting the concept creator from him or herself. At the end of the day, you just have to know you have to know what you're getting into. You don't necessarily need protection from the money investors. You just need to know how to set it up. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think uh, kind of the example with Jason Boso, we'll use him as an example because he got into details talking about it on the show. Uh, he started uh, Twisted Root Burgers, right? And it started doing really great. And then once he really started getting money in, I think the way he said it is the money will think it made you is how he put it. And you need to take care of yourself to, I mean, what, what do you need to do to make sure that the money doesn't think that it makes just take it from there. Yeah. So, so when we visit with, with, um, with concept creators and the, that's the person who comes to us and says, Hey, I have this idea. Uh, and they, and they have all this brand DNA in their head, right? It hasn't necessarily materialized. Maybe they're working for somebody else. Maybe they're, they're chefing at a hotel. They're chefing at a restaurant. They're, um, they, they, they've never cooked a day in their life, but they have this great idea for a restaurant. Um, we get all kinds of people who come to us, people who've been in the industry and gone out and come back. So, so it's all about the idea. So where you put the idea is important. And so what we recommend that people do is they come in and when we sit them down, we, to, we ask them initially sort of what, what is the goal? I mean, was, is victory for you? Are you going to be one unit of a really iconic brand? Or do you think that there's a possibility that you could have multiple units? Mm. Um, if, if that's the case then um, we structure it a certain way, right? And that way is we want the intellectual property, the trademark, the recipes, sort of all the, all the operational um, niceties that make the concept special uh, owned by the concept creator. And so, so usually when you're raising money for that first unit, um, you're going to go out, it's going to be friends and family, sort of one or two degrees of separation outside of that friends and family, and, and those people are giving money. So many concept creators come, come in and think that they're having to beg for money. Mm. When in reality, they're, they're, they're out giving investors the opportunity to put money into something excellent. So what we do is we try to encourage the concept creators who come to us to, to lock down their intellectual property in a company that they own. That's the company that's going to go file a trademark. Um, we always recommend that you file a, a trademark registration with the federal government so that you can protect yourself against other people who may either on purpose or accidentally stumble into your name. Um, and then when you raise money, you put it into the operating entity that's actually going to be the brick and mortar store. I, you know, I, I, I like that you also mentioned that you need to have the mentality that you're not going out looking for like angel investors, right? To like, to like, 
make your wishes come true, but to know that you are creating a thing of value that people are going to invest in and get a return on investment. And if you take that approach, how does that change the perspective? How does that change the things that you do? Just having that simple like mind switch. Yeah. How does that change the approach? Well, people hate asking for money. I mean, mm-hmm. nobody wants to nobody wants to walk around with uh, the kids, you know, school fundraiser and ask people to help. Right. Nobody enjoys that. But but when you when you think of it as I need money, I need help, which which you do, and it is help. Um, it puts you sort of in a weak position, mm-hmm. right? But when you realize that you're creating a thing of value, and that what these people are being given is the opportunity to either pull their money out of the market or some other investment or, or the bank, and put it into something exciting, then it, it empowers you to to build that concept and and invite these people to have this experience. Yeah, you're no longer asking for a favor. You're offering you're doing somebody a, a favor by oh, giving totally. them the opportunity to invest in this this vision that you have. Uh, so what do we once we kind of change that mindset like and we are are approaching this the right way uh what steps do we take from there? Like what are the things what are the the boxes we have to check to make sure we're doing it right? A lot of boxes. Um, we're a big fan of box checking. So, so you have to nail down that name. You have to try to get your trademark in the pipeline. I mean, the, the federal government is not even going to get to your application. Once you do nail down the name, they're not going to get to it for six months. So, so we, we will try to vet whether your name is good sort of early on. Um, and people hate it. People hate the fact that sometimes we tell them we don't think it's going to work, right? Give me an example of a time that you didn't think something was going to work. Like, what will make it not work? So, so usually there's something out there that, that – so the naming conventions are very esoteric. And, and so people, what people do is they'll come to me and they'll say, I just bought eight domains, right? So I have it. Well, that doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that you have it. So years and years ago, we worked with – there was a, somebody wanted to, to create um, – so you, a, you, you, sorry, you're saying you have the domain names, but just because you have the names doesn't necessarily mean exactly you can use right. them. Totally right. So you can use the domain, but it doesn't mean that your name is protected. It doesn't mean that you're going to be able to use it. Look, um, if you got McDonald'sBurger.com, well, I mean, like, <laughs> like that you, probably wouldn't be a good thing. If you decide that you want to, if you want Fred's Cafe, yeah, right, and Fred'sCafe.com is available, or even Fred'sCafe.net, and mm-hmm. you you buy that domain and you create an entity and you file a DBA or an assumed name with your county or in, in your state, then you then most lay people think, okay, I have a name that I want to use nailed down. It's, it's, it's alive on the internet and it's alive in these state filings. But what that doesn't look at is does somebody in Sheboygan have a registered trademark for Fred's cafe, you know, federally registered trademark that will prohibit you Mm -hmm. from using it. And so the question is, and so one time we, we were working on a brand that wanted to be La Vida Supper Club. Okay. And we looked up, uh, you know, we, we, contacted the uspto and and eventually we found out there was something else that had la vida in it and they weren't going to clear it but when we put the word viva in front of la vida which which changed the meaning right um it went through and i use that as a way to say it seems really close but it's not yeah because it changed the meaning of the word got you so um this is kind of why you mentioned earlier, you got to ask yourself, you got to start the the end in mind. Like, what do I want to become? Do I want to scale this into something that is in multiple states? Or if you're another thing to think about, too, is if you're in New Hampshire, where like the states are much smaller and you want to open a restaurant 10 miles away, 
that might be in Massachusetts <laughs> or 10 miles away in the opposite direction. It might be in Maine. Mm-hmm. Like that's a small geographic and you have to think about all these other states. And like, that's something to really think about. Well, Google has shrunk the world of information. Mm-hmm. And so it used to be you could create Fred's, Fred's Cafe and people in Sheboygan would never know about it. Yeah. Right. But but now they will probably have a Google alert set up for their own name. Mm-hmm. So you're going to go spend 10000 bucks on a sign. You're going to get ready to open. You're going to print your menus. And then when the, when the first bit of press hits the internet, they're going to get a Google alert. They're going to send you a cease and desist letter that says, we have this name. You better stop. And you will, then, then you have to figure out, well, now what do we do? We already spent all this money developing the concept, developing the marketing, printing T-shirts, whatever it is you're going to do, right? And so it's so much better to know that in advance and to, and to know that you have a clean sort of a piece of intangible property, right? That trademark is an asset and you want it to be valuable so that if you sell that company down the road, you actually do have something to sell. If you want to franchise it in the future, you don't want to franchise without a registered trademark. Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 it, and, it, and most people say, look, I don't want to become a franchise. I just want one or two units, but it's still really important because you don't want somebody else who's out of town to be able to challenge all the hard work that you've done. Okay, so the first step is start with the end in mind. Think about yeah. what you want to become. Second step is get a federally registered trademark. Have we covered all of that yet? Or do you, is there anything else you want to add onto that, that process of getting the federally uh, registered trademark? That, that's what we were just talking about. But yeah. I mean, that's um, it, too many, a lot of people skip it. We really wish they wouldn't. The whole process of getting the trademark. Yeah. 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 So. What else do we need to talk about regarding the – I mean, how is a uh, federally registered trademark in intellectual property? Like, I mean, the, how does that – how are those things like the same? Like, I so, guess. so a trademark is a kind of intellectual property, okay, right? Gotcha. Like a patent, a trademark, yeah. a copyright. So you can't copyright recipes because it's just basically a list of instructions. Okay. Um, so you have to be able to, to put on paper how you own what you own, you know, um, how you train – uh, what are your trade secrets? What are not your trade secrets? And so that's all part of that brand DNA that you're going to hold in a separate company. When you go raise money for that first or second unit, um, you're, ra- you're going to raise money into a different entity. Okay. And that's going to be on a lease. That'll probably have your liquor license. That's where all the operations are going to be. That's going to pay payroll. That's going to do a lot. That's going to do all the ordering. It's going to have a bank account. It's going to do stuff. And and that's where the investors will invest their money. Mm. When we structure these um, almost all the time, the investment dollars come into the operating company um, to pay for the build out of that particular unit um, and and does not give the investors ownership in the in the entity that owns the intellectual property. And so when Jason was talking about that, he was recommending that people split it up so that um, and you don't it's not sneaky. You mean you you tell your investors what how it's structured. Um, but but they they invest in that brick and mortar location or that food truck or that whatever but that brick and mortar location um and that's what they own okay right that's they own a piece of that so what what is it that you think causes people to uh avoid going through this process of getting federally registered trademark is it a money thing is it do you think they think it's just too complex like why do you think people don't do it um sometimes it's a money thing sometimes it seems more it seems like doing more than they think is necessary. Okay. You know, if I'm just going to have one or two diner units in in uh, in Oklahoma City, why do I care about a federally registered trademark? Don't I just have some common law right to gotcha. do it in my area? Which is true. They would have a common law right to do it in Oklahoma, 
um, in their in their geographic area. But then if somebody else comes along in the future, you know, it if they have the na- a name like your name and they register it, they can still use it. And then they're going to start showing up on Google searches. So, I mean, we had a client with a, with a bunch of restaurants in Dallas and somebody used their name in Wisconsin. And the, so people were searching for restaurants here and that name started popping up on Google searches and confusing everybody because it looked different. It was completely, completely yeah. unrelated. Um, and so it just dilutes the brand. Okay. You know, it dilutes the value of what you're building. What's, I'm curious, like a ballpark figure, how much can we expect to, to invest or how much money should we have in the bank before thinking about going to a lawyer to get this done? Like how much will this cost? The IP part? Yeah. Like filing the trademark? Yeah. I mean, um, the filing fees with the government are $225. That's not bad. That's not bad. Um, for each, so, so that's per class of goods and services. And, the, and almost always the goods and services that we're talking about are restaurants and bars, right? So that's one class of goods and services. And then, and then we charge, um, when we do it, we sort of do it on a flat fee and it covers about that entire six month process. So, I mean, you should probably budget, you know, $1,500 for that. Okay. Give or take. Good to know. So once we've, uh, obtained our intellectual property or we own our intellectual property, we have that entity, it's ours. Uh, we've trademarked it. What's the next step? Well, so you're going to be raising money at the same time. So you're going to go create that operating entity. And what we really want to, uh, if, if, if the most important thing that people walk out of here listening to the podcast today, if they understand that they can't go raise money with a business plan, just a business plan is not going to do it. So when you, when you raise money, when you're giving somebody an investment opportunity and they're giving you cash, that is selling a security in a company. So when people hear, oh, I'm selling securities, it makes, they think that they're talking about New York Stock Exchange, right? Publicly traded companies. It's not. It's still a security, though. So these are privately traded companies. They have their own rules. So you have to comply with the federal government's rules and your state government's rules about how to properly sell securities to people because there are government agencies that want to make sure that people don't get ripped off. And so when you sell a security, you have to comply with the rules. So you want to look at are you selling to accredited investors, which means investors that have a certain amount of net worth. It's over a million dollars of net worth, not including their house, um, or a certain income level. And it's just a defined term. So if they're accredited, the government cares a lot less whether they're going to get ripped off by some, you know, fancy document because they're presumed to have investment savvy, right? They're going to be able to sort of understand it. They can also, whether the the cost of losing that money, it's not going to put them in the poorhouse. And so you have accredited investors, sophisticated investors, and and unsophisticated investors. And so you so when you sell securities, generally speaking, you have thirty five unaccredited but sophisticated investors and no more and so you can't make a public offering you can't just email a blast out to a thousand people and say we're raising money um and you have to give them risk disclosures you have to tell them like hey the restaurant industry is risky and here are all the creative ways we could lose all your money and so you detail that and and there there are rules about it and we really encourage people to say take your business plan that you're making that that is sort of the you know the outline of what your project is going to be and let us fill that out for you and make it compliant with law so that later, if you lose everybody's money, they don't sue you for securities fraud. My mind is spinning right now. I'm trying to keep up with you, but uh, okay. you know, like th- there's a reason why we have you on the show is because this is, it's kind of confusing for some people, myself included. Um, so 
one thing you mentioned, you said that we cannot uh, email blast a bunch of people saying, hey, I'm raising money. If you or I'm looking to find investors, uh, I have this great opportunity for you. You can't do that. Why? Why can't well, you? Well, you can you could do it as long as you don't give them any documentation. Right. But you can't if you just say, hey, everybody that we know, we're going to be raising money. If you would like to know more please reach out to us. Then you can provide them with the proper documentation, right? And and vet them and see if they're, are they accredited or are they not? But you can't just put all of your sort of fundraising materials, your your private equity materials into an email attachment and email it to a thousand people because it, it that becomes a public offering. Okay. Right? A private offering is private. And so it has to go to a specific, sort of a specifically designated group of people, or you what? have to vet them through a portal. What if I emailed a thousand different people separately? Yeah, if email? you know a thousand people, <laughs> right? If you if you have a personal relationship yeah. with all of them, great. If you take your open table database and fire off securities documents to them, that's bad. Okay, got right? you. And so mo- but most of the time what we see is people download sort of a uh, a business plan template off the internet. They'll fill it out and it'll be like, here's the narrative about the concept. Here's the executive summary about the the founder. You know, here's some projected financials. Um give me a check. Mm-hmm. So let's get back to some of these boxes that we're going to check. What, yeah. what boxes have we checked up to this point, just to kind of summarize? Well, you know, thinking about um, trademarks is, is, a, is an important one. Um, understanding that there are rules when it comes to raising private equity, right? And private equity is anything that's not public. So private equity is friends and family. Private equity is, um, you know, it's all those, it's those money investors that are coming in um, as like people call them limited partners, they're yep. members in LLCs, whatever. So, you know, understand like sort of the scared straight message about, you know, don't, don't just do this in a fly by night way. That's a box we check. Okay. Um, and then, and then I think the next box we can check is how do you structure it to make sure that investors get a good return on their money, but the concept creator stays in control of his or her concept. So how do you do that? So, so the way that we like to structure these, and it's a reasonably common way of doing it, maybe more than reasonably, it may be like the most common way of doing it. Um, it's when these investors invest, they don't necessarily own a controlling interest in the company. They might own, you know, let's call it 25 or 30% of the company, but you, you want to pay them back um, as quickly as possible. Like you, you, your goal is to make a return for your investors. And so we often structure it where the the concept creator owns the majority of the company and stays in control of the ownership, but pays back um, at a much more accelerated percentage to the money investors. So it might be 75, 80, 85 percent. Um, and that that reduces the investment risk to the investors. And then it also incentivizes the owner because as soon as they're paid back, that owners, not they're all owners, but the founders profit distributions go up because then it trues up to the real percentage. And so it it's a it's a good balance between getting the investors paid back as quickly as possible and incentivizing the concept creator to generate enough profit to pay them back so that then he or she or their company or whatever their group can make the lion's share of profit going forward. Okay. Uh some people I've interviewed have mentioned uh sitting Setting it up in a way, uh, the, the agreement up in a way where you have a little bit of a cushion. If things are slow to start and you don't have that cash flow right away, like to almost have like a, like a, I guess maybe like a, a flexible period where like, I don't even know what, what words to use and how to explain this. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? To like, yeah. And, and so, so 
I mean, if there are profits, you don't necessarily have to distribute it, right? If the company makes money, makes a profit, maybe you need a new walk-in. Like maybe you want to build a deck, you know, um, you'll use profit for that. And so there may not be profit to distribute. And so there's the way that we write it, there is no mandatory distribution of money because that can really hamstring you if you don't have, you don't, if you don't have distributions to make. I mean, if you're on a quarterly distribution schedule and there's no profit to distribute, that kind of puts you in a bind. Mm-hmm. So you distribute profits when you have profit. Um, we also like to make sure that the, the founders, the, the people in control, have the ability to create and maintain sort of a cash reserve right? A contingency reserve. And so you're going to build that up. You'll use those first few months sort of building up your contingency reserve. Um, but basically every construction project in the, since, since the pyramids has gone over budget. And so if you go over budget, like everyone else does, you're going to need to build back that cash reserve. And so you're not necessarily going to be distributing profits the first month that you're open, right? You're going to hold, you might wait six months. I mean, that's assuming you make profits and hold it. Sometimes you don't make profit for the first six months or the first year, and you've got to ramp up. So every deal is different. But even when you're making money, you don't necessarily have to distribute as long as you're, as long as what you're doing with the money makes sense. Okay. So regarding the actual document, or are there multiple documents? Uh, say if, if I don't have the money to go to a lawyer and get this done, but... Are there templates out there that we can find? Are there, are there things that the normal Joe Schmo can do to protect himself? Or, and if so, then what? Well, I, I don't know of any templates that are going to be able to, to draft for the kind of um, mechanics that this kind of deal would need. Okay. Right? If you're a sole owner and you're not having investors and you have your own money, um, or, you have, or you don't necessarily have investors that are going to get an accelerated payback and it's just you and you know, your brother and your college roommate or whatever, um, that's an easier document to do, you know? Um, and so there might, you know, you might be able to legal zoom it, even though we're, you know, not huge fans of that because it's just sort of a soulless, you know, yeah. um, inartful way to do things in my opinion. But, um, but, but in terms of sort of doing securities related documents with, there's no template that'll work for you. You know, because we're going to sit down and get answers to questions about how are you going to run the company? What, what is important to you? You know, what what do investors get a vote on? Is it something? Is it nothing? I mean, is it is it filing bankruptcy? Is it, you know, building a second unit? Do you want to give the investors the first right of refusal to invest in the second unit or not? You know, I mean, people get to make the founders get to make that decision. And so there's no there's no checklist online that says, OK, if you check this box, this paragraph will magically show up. So what if I just want to make sure if I'm uh, say I've met some, I mean, I feel like if you're going to get that kind of money to go through the process to open a restaurant, what's an extra $1,500 to get an attorney to sit down with everybody at the table, right? Like why not, why not work that into the budget? So is that a conversation you would have with your investors? Like, Hey, you're also going to pay for the attorney that's going to put this deal together. Is that where we should look to get the money? Maybe? Well, you would, you would create a budget for the project. And so, you don't necessarily sit down and say, hey, pay for the lawyer. The, the company itself is going to have accounting fees, accounting expenses. It's going to have lawyer expenses. It's going to have construction expenses. You're going to have to buy chairs and tables, right? You buy FF&E. So you're going to give the investors a, a list of how you're going to use the proceeds of the investment. Mm-hmm. So there may be 20 things on there, right? You may have small wares and FF&E, and you may have equipment, and you may have all kinds of other stuff, including accountants, lawyers, um, designers, architects, everything. And so if you raise a million dollars 
um, and your attorney's fees are 25,000 bucks, that's one line item out of how you're going to aggregate the million bucks, Mm -hmm. right? So it's just all in there together. So you have to tell the investors what you're using the money for, um, with a, and everybody understands, like it's subject to a little bit of fluctuation. Do you think the investors in the person looking to get investment or looking to get the, the money should have separate lawyers? Or, or can you all hire just one lawyer together to, to manage everything? Well, most of the time, so they should be separate. But most of the time, the founder comes to us and we create the company and nobody knows who those investors are going to be. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in, in sort of the second vertical, when, when, you know, three friends come together and it's one's a chef, one's a GM and one's a, an accountant, right? Um, those those people tend to they can either have their own lawyer they can hire the lawyer to be the lawyer for the company and sort of put those documents together it's a little dicier to do that but in terms of you know one or two people come together forming their restaurant group and then going out to find investors the investors like we don't know who they're going to be mm-hmm. and so they almost always have their own lawyers yeah. read the material um because the i mean the packets that we put out for these private equity investments they're like 110 pages they're massive and so, and they're full of, of legal terminology. And so, um, I mean, we encourage them to have a lawyer read it. Yeah. So you were talking earlier about the intellectual property. So, so essentially, I think the big, the big overarching thing to take away from this is make sure you own the intellectual property. What are some examples of the, the intellectual property that we should be considering? Like what, what items fall underneath that list of things of, that should be on that list? Like the... Sure. No, it's everything that makes up the concept, right? Not it's not the it's not the the tables and chairs are not intellectual property. Those are just those are just assets, right? Yeah. It's just personal property. Uh, intellectual property IP is the trademark, the recipes, um, the trade dress, sort of your decor, like the, your idea of how like how do you make this burger? Like does it have a pinch of this or a smidge of that? Right. All the intangible stuff. Everything. Okay. And so what you would do is so the way that we that we make absolutely certain that it's separate from the restaurant company, and I don't want this to be lost on you either. Is is the the intellectual property company the founder creates, where it has the name, right? Um, it has a contract with the operating entity, and it licenses the IP to the restaurant company, and the investors see the contract, so they can never argue. Hey, wait a minute, we didn't we we didn't know we weren't owning the name because there's a contract in the in that packet that says we're licensing the right to use the name from the other company. Um, and there's just you can't argue with it later, whether you like it or not. Well, if you don't read that 110 page packet, it's not my fault. <laughs> I hear you. So um, I feel like we've talked a lot, but I feel like the the, the big takeaway is really just to, the budget for the the fifteen hundred dollars. So you can have the or that's just for the uh, that's the trademark. That's the trademark, and then maybe twenty five thousand dollars is what you would need to to put together a document is, is that well what I that's sort of like the the outside like if we were doing a completely full like liquor permits and investor documents gotcha. and um, you never want the investors to pay for your trademark you got to pay for that yourself because if the investors pay for it they're going to argue that they own it right yeah so you pay for that out of your own pocket simply. Yeah. but all the stuff that goes into the restaurant and that's even the sort of the formation of um, employee handbooks and contracts for managers and all that stuff. It's like that's would all be rolled up in sort of the professional fees for lawyers, right? So I was just sort of given a generic twenty five gotcha. grand out there. Um because in a million dollar project, you're gonna have that. Lawyers are gonna have to look at the lease, they're gonna have to look at the contracts with the G C. Um there are things that lawyers need to do. Gotcha. Um 
But but that's part of the line item of the restaurant startup cost, just like, you know, tables, chairs, ice machine, stainless fabrication and everything else. Okay. Uh, it's You know, I love getting people like you on the show. I feel really stupid having the conversation, though, I have to admit, just because there's so many things you're throwing out there that I, I'm just not familiar with. But I'm willing to make a fool out of myself in front of everybody because it's something that we need to talk about. But is there is there, is there anything else that we haven't covered regarding uh, going to investors in and having that type of partnership versus the people that are going to be standing shoulder to shoulder with you, those partnerships. Well, I, yeah, I just want to make sure that, that, you know, it's, it's, it's daunting, right. To ask, to ask people for money, to, to give them this opportunity. But what we have, what we have benefited from as an industry, and I mean, as a hospitality industry is, is the sea change in, acceptance of the hospitality industry as not only sort of a career path, but as an investment, um, as an investment target because of primarily, I mean, I have to say it's primarily because of food network, right? Because food network in the last generation and a half since it launched in 1993 has completely modified the entire country world, like English speaking world's concept of what it is to be involved in the hospitality industry. And and so and so it sort of becomes a vanity investment, right? The people that are working in the trenches know how hard it is. The people who are not have watched Food Network and think it would be really cool to invest in or own a restaurant or a bar. They don't want to do the hard work themselves necessarily, but they like to invest in it. They want to go to it. They want to take their friends. They want to say that they're involved. And so it does make it easier than it used to be to go get restaurant investment and you know, we're still battling against that sort of old, I mean, I don't even know if it's an old wives tale. It's just, it used to be this accepted um, philosophy that the restaurant industry was so risky. It's so risky. Like nobody would invest in restaurants, never invest in restaurants. Well, it's only risky if you're undercapitalized and you don't have good people around you and you don't hire well, because the restaurant industry is the second largest uh, economy in in the United States after healthcare. It's massive. It's a massive employer. People are always going to eat out. And all you have to do is provide a fantastic experience for the public, right? It's, it's only risky if you, if you don't do it well. Mm-hmm. So one other thing I'm kind of curious about, because you've worked with a lot of people that have put together these packages to go out to find uh, investors. What do you notice about the people that have done it right that seemed to get the investment pretty easily? Like, What are the, the, the trends you've seen in these people that that do it successfully and don't really flounder versus those who kind of flounder all over the place and never quite get foothold. So one of the ways that, that early stage companies tend to do it is they, they often will make the first one or two units, a a more attractive investment structure for the investors. Um, So they'll give away a little bit more of their own money in order to get the deal done with an anticipation that they're going to be so successful that they don't have to do that in Units three, four, ten, fifteen, whatever. That's bold. Yeah, <laughs> right. Because if you're if you're delaying your profit by two or three years on units one and two, because you want to you want proof of concept, then it makes it a lot easier for the tire kickers on units three, four, five, six, seven to come in and see your financials and see how you've done and see see the line around the door. Um, but but in order to incentivize people to you know pull their money out of the stock market. Um, or use their bonus or use their savings or whatever, you know, maybe it isn't just a, you know, 80% to 30% flip. Maybe it's 80% to 50% to 35% to 20%, 
you know, so they might have extra tiers of payback that is beneficial to the investors that delays the true, the founder's true profit for a little, a little while longer. Um, and, and to that end, let me make sure that, that we always want to make sure that the founders get paid. Mm-hmm. And so, so it's very, very common, especially in the places that we do these deals that the founders are taking a, a percentage of the gross as a management fee so that they don't have to wait just for profit distributions. They have to be paid something off the top in order to run the company. So they're, they're basically that money that you would budget to pay a manager is what they're taking as a salary. They're they're like, it's like a profit first mentality of pay yourself first, work it into the budget. And then don't, you're not taking a percentage. Like you're taking, they, they will often have a general manager also. Right. But, but the people that run the company and have to deal with back office and insurance policies and, you know, dealing with the Coca-Cola contract and vendors and whatever, like that's not necessarily a GM. Mm-hmm. You're probably going to pay a GM too. But but the management fee is usually a 5% of gross sales fee to the founder, a payment to the founder for doing the things that the founder, for running the company. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if you only get paid in profit, if there's no profit, you're not going to work very long. You just won't. You'll hate it, mm-hmm. right? You'll quit. Yeah. Um, and so the, the way that the, and so once you build multiple units, that, that management fee that you paid, so if you have three units and you don't have an in-house bookkeeper, you're going to be looking for one. Right. And so you got to pay that person somehow. So eventually when you get to third and third and fourth unit, you're going to need a multi-unit manager. You cannot be in three restaurants at one time in one day. It's impossible. And if you are, you're being inefficient. So you have to have money with which to pay for those things. And that isn't GM and AGM in a restaurant. That's not chef and kitchen manager. That's just you. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so that's where that management fee eventually, if you've got 10 units and each one's paying 5% of gross sales into your management company, that's a lot of money that you're going to use to run and build your infrastructure. So, so we, we don't want people to lose, fi- lose sight of the fact that yes, you're going to accelerate the profit distributions to your investors, but you still have to make sure that you get paid. Got you. Anything else you're seeing people uh, do well uh, or the people that are doing this well, like little tricks of the trade that you picked up on just watching this be executed? You know, in, uh, investor communication is so critical. Um, it's really important to w- whether things are going excellent or things are going really badly. You know, you have to keep in touch with them. And I'm not saying weekly, but I'm saying more than once a year, mm-hmm. you know, and whether it's Monthly, when you send out financials and maybe you send out a newsletter or, or every quarter, you know, you make a distribution and you talk about all the great things, you profile employees. There's so many different ways to do it. But it's so easy to get bogged down in the day-to-day life of the insanity of how hard we have to work that, um, you know, you make your financials, you send out your monthly financials by email, um, maybe you send out a check every month or two or a quarter. And, and you don't have any meaningful interaction with those investors. And those people get, um, get tired easier. Mm. You know, it's, it's a lot easier to get, to get – um, it doesn't take much to make those people disgruntled. It kind of reminds me of the whole like Danny Meyer and Lightning Hospitality, uh, you know, first with your employees and your guests. And it trickles all the way up to your investors, right? You have to have that, that, that level, that, that thoughtfulness, that caring for the investors. Uh, they're a part of your team. You can't keep them in the dark. You, you can't just look at them as a transaction. you got to treat them like people. Yeah. Well, why would you preach hospitality to your team mm-hmm. and then preach hospitality to your guests? and preach hospitality to the community mm-hmm. 
and ignore your investors. Exactly. It doesn't who, make sense. Who dropped all the money to build the concept that you're working on. Right. So anything else that's worse, that's worth touching on before we tap on the other vertical of uh, the, you know, having partners that are team members with you building this, this vision. Um, one of the fun things that sometimes people forget about is when we're talking, you asked about sort of what makes up the, the definition of intellectual property. One of the things that, that uh, people sometimes miss is if you've got a signature item, you know, on your menu, um, that's trademarkable. If mm-hmm. it has a great name. And so I don't remember the last time I was in a Denny's, right. But, um, spelled, spelled the other way. Right. But the last, <laughs> last time I was in a Denny's, I remember seeing about 17 trademarks on the menu. So like moons over my hammy is a ridiculous name, but it's trademarked and they, and they own it and nobody else can use it. I mean, when do you get so far? Like, like, is that going to be international or is that, is that going to be like another state thing or country thing? Like how do like, yeah, it's trademarked here. And if, and, and if, and if they are international, they'll, they'll take care of those trademarks in, um, in those other countries. So a federally registered trademark is, is United States based. Um, so weapons, if I'm a small mom and pop and I trademark a menu item, um, and say a Denny's, how would we even know a Denny's would put that on their menu? How would we, how would I even cross our radar? Most people use trademark searches or, um, or, uh, really, um, Google alerts is, is the way that a lot of people sort of the easiest way to monitor things. So what's that process look like? I mean, where you go into you creating a Google alert lets you, I mean, that's just a, you go, go Google it and it'll tell you how to set up an alert. Anytime you see this phrase, this combination of words, um, you know, like for example, for Jason, we have a, a Google alert for twisted root. Mm-hmm. Anytime those two words come up on the internet, if it's published on a blog, if it's published in the press, like we get an email about it. Yeah. Google will send us an email. And so like we have a great client that we, they've been a client since before the firm was created um, called Matitos. And Matitos has, um, has a rumberita, right? And they're, they're, this margarita called the rumberita, it's big and it's blue and it's limit two, right? Rumberita is a federally registered trademark. They don't want other people using it. It's a great name. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they don't want another Tex-Mex chain using their, you know, taking, taking, uh, taking benefit of, of the goodwill they put into the community, all the, all the advertising dollars, all the time that they spent developing it and getting people familiar with it. Like, people know, we go to Matitos and have a rum burrito. Like, you don't want them <laughs> going to some other place. All I can think about right now is buffalo wings. Yeah, <laughs> like that's one thing that like every restaurant has in their menus, and whoever did that the first time must be kicking themselves oh, for yeah. not trademarking. And now it's so generic; it's <laughs> it's, it's you know it's totally diluted. You yeah. could never do it. Like like you know tuna tower, whatever. And but those are descriptive, right? Buffalo buffalo wings uh, when they was for, were first created, not descriptive. Totally could have been trademarked. Yeah. Um, Rumberita trademarkable, right? So. Um, so we, we trademarked a number of uh, a handful of the specialty burgers at the Twisted Root. Um, you know, does it do we, do we ever have to uh, to yell at anybody for using them? No, but Twisted Root beer we've had to do a few times. Mm. You know, that's a good one. Yeah, because it's just spiked root beer. I can see how interesting. All right, so I'm gonna go take a break to thank the sponsors. Unless there's anything else you want to add before we dive into the other section. No, we're solid. All right, cool. We're gonna take a quick break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back. If you listen to Restaurant Unstoppable, I'm sure you've heard me say it before, but I'll say it again. There are two 
things that you need to let determine your growth. The first thing, that's people. The second thing, that's cash flow. And we've got you covered on the cash flow part of things because I'm working with cashflowtool.com, the ultimate cloud-based solution for your business. Cashflowtool.com is simple, powerful, and predictive. It's simple because it requires no data entry. It's always up to date and it works on any device, anywhere. It's powerful because with its built-in cash flow calendar, activity feed, and anomaly detector, you instantly know all aspects of your cash flow with no surprises. And it's predictive because you know your cash flow today and you can anticipate it tomorrow. Head over to www.cashflowtool.com unstoppable and enter promotional code unstoppable at checkout and you'll receive pro features at the essential features price. All right, I have a question for you. How can an anonymous employee reporting program be a profit center for your restaurant? Hmm. Well, for starters, fraud alone represents a staggering loss to the restaurant industry with an estimated $40 billion in losses in the U.S. in 2017 alone. And this does not include the losses and costs associated with the more than 540,000 calls made to the U.S. EEOC in 2017, resulting in millions of dollars in penalties and legal costs for restaurant owners and and investigators related to claims of harassment and discrimination. So do I have your attention? Good, because there's more. Employee tip-offs about misconduct continue to be the most common method for detection and prevention, but employees are often deterred from reporting their concerns directly to supervisors because they're afraid that there's going to be retaliation or they might lose their job or something, and I get it. But with Ethics Suites Anonymous and web-based RestaurantEthics.com, you can provide a safe, secure, simple, and anonymous communication channel between you and your employees to help protect your hard-earned reputation and assets. Go to ethicssuites.com slash restaurants unstoppable and you will get three additional months so for the cost of 12 months you'll get 15 months or head over to the show notes and find the banner and you can use the link there we're back and actually we're just talking off air and i was like i was like how do you how do you feel this is this is going david because it's i feel like it's going well i from from Speaking for myself, I'm confused. Like, this is a lot of, uh, I don't even know what questions to ask right now because it's, you know, we hear all the time on the show, like, get a lawyer, get a lawyer. So for me, instinctually, it's like, all right, like, I need to get a lawyer on the show to dive into this stuff so we can learn more. But um, it's really, it's it's foreign terminology. It's things that if you're not really active in this world, like, you, you're just not going to quite understand it. You know what I'm saying? Totally. Yeah. So um, I think what we're going to do is, is at the end of this, maybe we'll we'll share a list and I'll create a, a PDF that I'll host in the show notes. This is episode 569, I believe. So head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 569. We'll have the bullet points right there to make it. I mean, if you got lost, like I kind of got lost. I'm not going to lie. If you got lost like I did and you want to see the things that you need to consider, uh, we'll have a PDF to make it easier for you. So if if that's where you're at, if you're where I'm at, then don't worry. We'll make it. We'll make it easier. And uh, before we finish up for the day, we we want to talk about partnerships with uh, the the people that you're that are going to be in the trenches with you. Say if you have a fifty fifty partnership or whatever, like what that what that should look like, and what you should know about those types of relationships. So take it from there, David. What what should that look like? What things should we be thinking about in that regard? I'm, I'm sad that you got lost. So I'm going I'm to do better. <laughs> no, you, it's not you at all. It's 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 honestly, it's just uh, the the terms. You know, it's it's a uh, you know, you can. It's like making up words that I've never heard before, 
and you're using them in sentences and I just don't, it's just not sticky for me, but uh, I hope that the, the folks at home are more intelligent than I am and <laughs> you're doing great. It's not you. So, so in this vertical, we'll talk about, um, we'll just make a simple example, right? About, yeah. about, so, so this is the kind of thing where we're not necessarily, maybe we're not ready to go out and get money investors yet. This is the front of the house person and the back of the house person. Like she's a chef and he's a, he's a, a maitre d', right? And, and, or whatever, right? Not, yeah. not a, a, G, a GM, right? A chef and a GM. They want to come together and start their own restaurant. So, so there are some of the things that go into that equation that are really important. Because if you're a two or three, two or three person group, right, you're going to form your, you're, you're going to be ABC restaurant group. You're going to do your new project. Um, eventually, you are going to have to find money to do that, whether you're going to self-fund, go to the bank, go to investors, whatever. But before that, when you're, you and your two friends are getting together and saying, we're going to go do this, we're going to finally jump out and do our own project. It's really important to remember that when you put your own you put your restaurant group together, and that probably does end up becoming the intellectual property company, mm-hmm. right? Your restaurant group is going to own all that DNA, right? So that's where you put it. But in terms of how do we protect ourselves, the first really the first order of business is going to be how do we protect ourselves from each other and each other's sort of humanity. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we we recommend, and and I mean, if you don't do it, we're going to put in an email. We told you to do it, and you didn't do it. Like mm-hmm. it's that important. Yeah. So a buy sell agreement between the the founders that says, okay, if if one of these things happen, you have to sell to me, or I get the right to buy to you, because we and we we call it protecting from the four D's: death, disability, divorce, and deadbeats. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if 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 I'm if I'm going to go in and be partners with a chef, and the chef gets divorced, like I don't want to be a in a, in business with her ex-husband who's not a chef who doesn't bring anything to the table of my company. So if a divorce court gives the chef's ownership in the company to her husband and to her ex-husband in the divorce papers, we get the right to buy buy that person out. Right? Got you. So um and there there are things that go into it like, you know, you have to get consents and things, but but that agreement will do it. So if the chef dies, then you don't want to be partners with the chef's heirs because the chef's heirs are not cooking in your kitchen Mm -hmm. and so it protects against all these things and if and and you know sort of more commonly right if the uh if if one of the partners decides they've had enough and they're just going to go live in mexico right and they don't bring anything else to the table but they own 30 percent of the company you have to have if they're deadbeats if they don't do what they're supposed to do then you don't you shouldn't have to have them own a third of your company and pay them all this money if they're not going to bring to the table what they originally promised to bring to the table. So what was that that 4D's uh, document that you mentioned? It's or? a buy-sell agreement. Buy-sell agreement. Yep. Okay. Um, are there any other documents we need to know about or we should consider when going to, to these types of relationships, these partnerships? I mean, that's the main one, right? It's You're going to have a company agreement that's going to govern sort of how do we call meetings? What, are, what is the vote? What is the vote to hire people? What is the vote? Do we have to vote on this? Whatever. Because in small companies like this, you end up having a ownership meetings almost every day. Mm-hmm. So usually you put in these documents like, okay, we really only need to sit down and vote on big stuff. Are we going to, are we going to bankrupt the company? Are we going to buy a company? Are we going to sell to another company? Like what percentage does it take to make those decisions? The buy sell agreement is separate, right? So if I get killed, you don't have to be partners with my wife, mm-hmm. right? Because you don't want that. Um, so that it's different, right? So you have those documents in your own restaurant group company 
And then you're going to, if you go raise money from, from investors, you'll have all that other junk gotcha. that comes with, with doing that. So uh, what about relationships or partnerships where it's like not 50, 50, but say 30, 70, and they're also going to be working in the business with you. Any unique situations there that we should consider kind of like a hybrid document, what we're yeah. talking about before. Yeah. So, so percentages just sort of, they, they can be reflective of the amount of work somebody's mm-hmm. going to do, the amount of money somebody's going to bring. Um, and so you can write the document to, so, so if somebody, if somebody's bringing 70% of the dough is going to own 70% of the company, but say so you're the, like 80% of the talent. Yeah. And the yeah. 30% owner yeah. is going to be working in the kitchen, chained to the stove, you know, coming up with the, all the recipes, doing, doing all the menu development and, mm-hmm. and doing an equal amount of work. Yeah. You can write that document so that, so that that person has a voice. So it isn't, it doesn't always have to be 70, 30. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. on certain, you can basically say on certain things, it has to be unanimous mm-hmm. on certain things. It has to be two out of three. Right. Um, we also like to write in tiebreaker provisions. So we've written all kinds of crazy tiebreakers that people want dice games, coin flips, um, mediators, you know, a trusted advisor. That's what we recommend. Like you get a trusted advisor that can help you guys break a tie. That's that person's voice is final. Let's get more into this. I think this is interesting. Like what are some of the things that, you've seen people do uh, on paper to protect the decision-making processes. Some really, you already mentioned a couple. Yeah. Uh, what were some of those? Dis- like literally one was a coin flip, but we wrote it years ago. <laughs> and it was, it was the most ridiculous thing. It was an entire paragraph about how to flip a quarter. Oh, man. <laughs> and, we, and so it said something like, at the Starbucks, at the corner of this and that, we'll, we will videotape it or record it. Um, and it's a you know US twenty five cent piece, and if that Starbucks doesn't exist, then it'll be a place within you know a tenth of a mile or whatever. It was the craziest. <laughs> we just felt. I mean, we were we laughed as we were writing. And we were like, okay, we're writing the rules about how to flip a quarter, <laughs> and and so this person calls heads. I mean, this person gets to call it, and the other person gets the flip. But you're going to record it to make sure that nobody cheats. Mm-hmm. It was the most ridiculous thing ever. But but we do have we had some people come up with a dice game that I'd never heard of. They gave us the rules. We integrated the rules of this dice game into their agreement. Um, but mostly, most of the time, I mean, gosh, ninety five percent of the time, it's okay. We both know this person, this mentor, this whatever. The mentor is going to come in, and we're going to say, okay, we have reached an impasse. The company cannot move forward until we break this tie. Yeah, um, that person's decision about what's the best for the company is final. And I'm agreeing on paper now to abide by that decision. So you really got to think about like when, when, when the, the, the stuff hits the fan, how, how are we going to, what's the, the rules for operation for si- figuring that out? Like yeah. what, what are the, what's that going to look like? And you really only want it on big stuff. Yeah. So how do you know what stuff gets put onto that list of things that need to be uh, worked out a specific way? Well, you can't know every possibility in the yeah. future. And so, so essentially, it's if the company can't function um, or if an impasse lasts, you know, more than a certain amount of time, right? Something that, that you know is going to hamstring the company. Um, so, for example, it might be, should we close the should – we, should we wind down the business, mm-hmm. right, and liquidate the assets and get out? Like if the, if the two founders can't, can't decide on that and they're 50-50, then the company can't close. But you could if, – if that was – if that was something that was that was significant enough to each of the partners, like one of them could put it to the tiebreaker. 
Got you. Um, have, is there a, a number of partners that you you've seen works best? I've heard people say, go with if you're going to have partners, three is the magic number because uh, there's never going to be a tie. Like, or the, there's always going to be two against one, or all three, or or you know what I'm saying. Like, there's going to be a unanimous vote. So, is that something that you would say? Is that a good advice or? Yeah, fifty fifty is usually not a great idea. Okay. Um, other than that. I don't really, we don't really care. Okay. Um, because if you have four people at 25, you could just as easily have a deadlock. I mean, if it's two married couples, yeah. you, you might end up with, I mean, it's not, it's not 50, 50, it's still split in half. Um, if you have threes, you could have, you could have three people, um, and they could each own a third, right. Or some other, and you'll never have a tie. Yeah. Right. But you know, you don't have to worry about a tiebreaker, but sometimes we still write it in because you never know what's going to happen, right? Like they might throw a prophylactic uh, tiebreaker in there just in case one of the people goes away. Yeah. What about exit strategies? Uh, what about or uh, ways to get out? Like, I mean, people don't they think about like retirement in this industry as like basically death. I feel mm-hmm. like some people. So like, I mean, and I know this isn't really quite talking about partnerships, but I mean, does that play a role? Like no, when, totally like, does. Yeah, yeah. So, and it's a, it, it's a, I'm glad you brought it up. It really is an important thing to, to factor in, especially when you have minority partners, Yeah. because you, the last thing you want is to, is to forget to draft something for a 5% owner that says 95% want to sell. They're not going to buy the company if they don't have a hundred. And have that 5% holdout say, well, I'm going to get more because I'm not going to sell unless I get more. So you would put a provision in your agreement called a tag-along and drag-along provision, which means you can drag that 5% or along. If if everybody else agrees to sell, that person has to sell too. A tag-along means if the 95% decide to sell, they can't leave that person behind. He gets to tag-along with the majority interest. And so that will protect people on an exit strategy um i mean on an exit right if you're selling the company or liquidating the assets or whatever um and it prevents holdouts right it's a tragedy of the commons problem which is an economic theory where the holdout gets all the power and um you don't want that got you Uh, i think we've hit all the the objectives for today's conversation is there anything that hasn't come out that you're hoping that we would discuss or maybe we the i overlooked before we say goodbye well gosh there's always you know, there's always so much, so much that goes into this. And, and, and it's, it's so second nature to me that you know, a lot of these, a lot of the pieces sort of are incorporated within other pieces, right? So what I want people to take away from today is you always want to, you, you really do need to invest the time in getting a name that you can protect. You really do want to invest in separating your entities um, so that your investors are in a separate company. And then you really want to invest the time in putting uh, in front of those investors a document that not only segregates your intellectual property, but also protects the it protects the investors by giving them a ton of uh, disclosures about all the risks that they're going to they're going to take, but also protects you because later if they lose all their money, they're not going to be able to come back and say you didn't warn us. Yeah. Right. And so there are so many like these are just these really are they're complicated conceptually but they are the rudimentary building blocks of a new concept yeah you you just mentioned something that kind of uh, made me think of a new, another question and that was getting your entity your entity straight and organized what is there any benefit to having a, a restaurant group entity uh 
when having multiple restaurants, like with a multi-unit operation that has different concepts underneath one restaurant group, like is, is that, sure. does that play into this or is that a conversation for another day? No, it totally does. And so, and so if you're talking about a multi-concept company, yeah, then more likely than not, you're going to have your restaurant group. Mm-hmm. And then, and even if you didn't set it up like this at the beginning, mm-hmm. right, this can be created in the middle. So if you have two, let's say you have two concepts and each one has two units. Okay. If you want to go build a few more of one or a few more of the other, and then you're thinking about potential exit strategies, I may want to carve one of these off yeah. in a couple of years and sell it. You can put each one of these sort of into its own unit-based holding company. So you would have your restaurant group. Then you would have like the diner concept in a holding company to own your two or three diner units. And then you'd have your burger joint holding company to own your two or three burger joints. What exactly is a holding company? It's just something that owns – it has subsidiaries, it's an, it's right? It's an, an entity that yeah. you've created that owns things, Correct. like an LLC or yeah. anything like that. Okay. Yeah, so my restaurant group entity might create you know, Diners RS LLC, and then I'm going to put my three diner units underneath it as subsidiaries. Gotcha. And so if somebody wants to come and buy the diners off of me, the holding company sells that, Okay. Um, and it's, it's easier to just sort of carve that out. Now there, you don't necessarily have to have that. It really, it does make it cleaner for financial. Like if you're really trying to build solid financials on just your diner units or whatever, um, you can all, you can run them all through the diner holding company. Right. And, and you would not do that on the first day. You would do that later. You would do it as a housekeeping thing. You would clean, clean some stuff up with that. Um, you might have so for the reason you might do it is you might have um, you might have sort of regional developers or multi-unit managers for the diners that don't touch the burger joint, right? And so those guys probably would be employed by the diner holding company to go be multi-unit managers for all your diner entities, and then your burger joint is going to be sort of have its own regional or multi-unit managers that's going to take care of only the diner concepts, okay? So there, that would have its own payroll. It would have its own sort of its own – it would have different um, tasks. Okay. So I guess the, the original question, is there, is there benefit to having an overarching restaurant entity that well, owns all those things? Yeah. Essentially, your IP company, your intellectual property yeah. company becomes your restaurant group. Got you. You know, if you only have one concept, it just, it just owns that concept. If you have two, we we often put all of your trademarks, no matter what they are, into that IP company. Got it. Awesome. Yeah. Um, cool. This has been great. I, I'm sure when I go through and I edit this and I li- I listen to it again, that the first half, I feel like I'm, it's going to probably make a lot more sense to me. But it's it's really interesting stuff. It's stuff that you know. This is where growth happens, though. I feel like when you push the envelope and you you get into the confusing stuff and you start chipping away, it's scary at first. It's uncomfortable at first, but it's in those areas of discomfort that we start to grow as professionals, right? So sure. it's, it's good that I feel this way, right? Yeah, because I'm going to rationalize 80% it. 80% <laughs> of the people that, that come into our office yeah. have never done this before. Exactly. And so we we have the same conversations and we say, okay, look, this is this is sort of how it works. Let's let's make sure that you're comfortable. Yeah. So this, again, is episode 569. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 569. Uh, I will have a summary of the, the conversation over there as well as a link to maybe a PDF where we will uh, kind of break this down, take the, 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 the boxes you have to check when going through these things that we discussed. And also, how can we connect with you uh, if we have some questions or maybe want to 
use your services? What's the best way to connect? Yeah. Um, easiest way is email. Um, David at foodbevlaw.com. And I'll have your website in the, the show notes too if you want to check out the website. And uh, we wrap up every conversation by calling somebody out. And you called out Jason Boso two years ago. Just finally got him on the show. Um, who should I get in touch with now? Who, who else is on your radar that I should be talking to? You know, um, gosh, there's a, there's a restaurant concept in Fort Worth, Texas uh, called Grace. Okay. Grace. And they have a sister concept called Little Red Wasp. One's fine dining. One's casual. Um. They're run by uh, a guy named Adam Jones, and the chef is Blaine Staniford, and those two guys are they're, they're fantastic human beings. And, and, I, and I would say there's just about nobody in this area that does hospitality better than Adam. Beautiful. He Adam is. and Blaine, look out, guys. I'm coming yeah. after you. I'd love He's to get you on the show. Uh, and again, thank you, David Denny, for taking the time to, to share your knowledge, to, to go into these uncharted waters for me and I'm sure for many of my listeners so we can uh, become a little bit more competent and uh, a little bit more professional when, you know, trying to be the best we can be. (laughs) That's it. Cheers. Thank you. All right, there's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. I hope you guys found value in today's conversation. And I'm not going to lie. I got a little uh, lost while talking to David, uh, especially, mostly, and really only during the time when he was getting into percentages and paying people back. And I'm not a numbers guy. Uh, that was a little hard for me to keep up with. But when I was editing and listening to this a second time, it, it, it went well. I think this conversation went really well. I was kind of afraid that I was floundering a little bit too much there. But that, that was all in my head because there was a ton of great conversation, a, a ton of great advice in today's content. I hope you guys um, are feeling a little bit more confident uh, going into the future. Things that you're going to have to do, things... Uh, that will make you a little bit more unstoppable, protecting yourself, protecting your investors. And uh, some of the big takeaways for me in today's conversation, you know, getting into the right mindset. Uh, they are helping or you, you they're not helping me. I'm, I'm there to help them, the investors, to give them an opportunity. You are a person of value. You have your intellectual property. That is an asset and go into it with that mindset. Uh, then also, you know, just protecting your intellectual property, getting the copyright, right? Uh, really going through and making sure that your vision is possible and that somebody hasn't already come up with all these things. Like, don't go investing in swag and the domain names and, uh, you know, uh, laminated uh, glassware. Like, really make sure it's an option before you throw all the money at scaling your vision, right? And structure Structuring agreements, I think, is the other big takeaway from today's conversation. Uh, the four D's, for example, and uh, making sure you're 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 uh, taking into account uh, what to do if there's a tiebreaker and, and like how to to settle uh, disputes and all those things are things you're you're going to have to have in the operations agreement. And no one's expecting you to have any clue how to do that. So the the other big takeaway, obviously. You know, get the money, get an attorney, do it right. David's a great guy to go to. Uh, his information is in the, the show notes as well. And I'm going to have a little checklist for you guys. Uh, so head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 569. We'll have the PDF over there. Just a, a little checklist for you for you to, to make sure you're going through the motions and getting all the things you need. Really straightforward. And yeah, uh, this is what the future of Restaurant Unstoppable is going to look like, by the way. I want to have more uncomfortable conversations like this and uncomfortable for me in the sense that I don't 
really quite know what questions to ask when I have these these conversations. I'm going in kind of blind. Uh, I'm not an expert in all these things, but by having these conversations, by being willing to expose my incompetencies to you guys, I'm hoping that we can all grow together and I'm going to be uh, equipping myself with the the knowledge for to ask the right questions when I'm speaking to the, the restaurateurs going into the future. So we need to get a little uncomfortable uh, to grow. And I think that's happening and I'm really excited for the future. And I hope you guys found value today. I think that's all. Uh, like always reach out to me, Eric at restaurantstoppable.com. Help me spread the word about this podcast, share it with anybody and everyone, you know, that is aspiring to be great in the industry. And, uh, keep those five star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming. They help so much. I think that's the stuff I always say. I think I hit it all. Uh, I'm going to wrap it up now. Thanks for sticking around this long. I love you all. Until next time. Peace out.